Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. the rent by the end of the week he's out of here you wake me up for that come on dewey finn would have sold his soul for rock and roll but nobody was buying you're an embarrassment you're out maybe it's time to give up those dreams don't you miss rocking out you're not a teacher ned you're the cross-dressing incubus from maggot death dewey i'm not a satanic sex god anymore i'm a sub and soon i'll be a certified teacher Mr. Schneebly? I'm the principal here at Horace Green Prep, and we need somebody to start immediately. Hmm, so how much are we talking here? $6.50 a week. Hello, this is Ned Schneebly. Everyone, I'd like to introduce Miss Dunham's substitute. This is Mr. Schneebly. All right, look, I've got a hangover. Who knows what that means? Doesn't that mean you're drunk? No. It means I was drunk yesterday. Now, at the most prestigious prep school in the country. Yes, Tinkerbell. That poster charts everyone's performance. Where the students are rewarded for following the rules. What kind of a sick school is this? He's going to teach them a lesson. There will be no gold stars or demerits. That will rock their world. It's called Rock Band. Is this a school project? It will go on your permanent record. Hello, Harvard, yo. You, what's your name? Zach. You ever play electric guitar? My dad won't let me. Zach, do not walk away from me when I'm talking to you. What makes you mad more than anything in the world? No allowance. Chores. Bullies. All you bullies get out of my way, cause I am really ticked off. Mr. Schneebly, just wanted to say, that was a really cool lesson today. Oh, thanks, dude. All they wanted was an education. They're gonna laugh at me. You have an incredible singing voice. People are gonna dig you, I swear. Okay. What they got... Clear. ...was a revolution. I've just been informed that all of your children are missing. And if you were to be a teacher... Jack Black. <laughs> the School of Rock. It will test your head and your mind and your brain. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Button up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Rick Derringer, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Reader and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, TanTalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our archive page, NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. Good evening, Tommy. How you doing? I'm doing great, Robert. How you doing? Sorry about that. That's okay. That's okay. You know, we're going to keep it uh, docile this time. I mean, I got a little carried away last week, but that was fun. 
Uh, I was amazed at how many reviews we got on that one. But anyway, uh, since this is a non-political show and we're just strictly about cars and guitars and music and stuff like that. But we got a very interesting, a very special guest coming on this afternoon. And uh, we're going to do a little uh, music for you guys. Uh, or we're going to be talking about instruments a little bit later. So I'm delighted to have this gentleman come on. But uh, let's see what's going on. Well, today obviously is Rib Shack Tuesday. So this is the day that we wander over to 426 West Bay Drive and go uh, chow down with our good buddies over at the Rib Shack. And uh, Tommy, what do you think of that Rib Shack uh, BBQ today? Uh, I'm loving it. You're loving it. All right. Good, good, good. Okay. So don't forget like to- like that mac and cheese, too. You like that mac and cheese? Okay. Make sure you uh, stop in there and mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and probably get a free drink or something like that. But, but you got to buy a meal first, too. Included, obviously. But at any rate, um, Florida Car Shows, FLACarshows.com. I missed one this weekend. They actually had the record show in Orlando this weekend, which I got tied up with something else. And the British Car Show was in Sanford, Florida, and I missed that as well. Now, this weekend, Leadfoot City is uh, got their big thing, their big car show swap meet thingy going on. And uh, one of these days, they'll have a drag strip ready. So we're going to have to get some of the guys from uh, Leadfoot City on here pretty soon. Village's Car Show, I think, rumors has it that they're going to do their deal, which is every third Saturday of the month. Maybe go over there. If you're in the trucks, I think not this weekend, but next weekend is the up on uh, at the Wildwood exit, which is State Road 44, to the west of, uh, to the east of Inverness, to the west of Wildwood. There's a place up there called the Chrome Shop. So there's a big truck show going on there. I think that's in two weeks. So you might want to check that out. And, of course, Amelia Island Concourse is May 22nd, 3rd, and 4th. So that's the biggie that we're looking forward to. Um, the Walter Mitty's coming up, which is an HSR event in uh, at Road Atlanta. I'm kind of partial to Road Atlanta because I think it's kind of a cool track. It's actually where I got my racing license back in the day, back when it was still part of the old track. It's kind of like Sebring. You know, a lot of these tracks were... Like Sebring, I think at one point was five miles, pretty close to it. Then it was four something. Now it's just under four, maybe something like that. And uh, a really, really, really fast car gets around there, and I think just a little over a minute. A little slower, slower car gets over there in a minute and a half, something like that. But you know, it's pretty fast track. But I like going to Facebook and looking at vintage pictures of all the old racetrack and all the old cars. I mean, I really—it's kind of like I was—I've uh, got a guest coming on in a couple of weeks when we're going to be talking about cars again. These new cars, they're cool, they're techy, but they're just too sophisticated and very, they're just getting more and more sterile, you know? I mean, that's just my take on it. You know, the older cars, you can relate to it. A friend of mine just picked up and sent me a picture of it, covered in dirt and filth, supposedly sitting in a building, in a storage unit, for, since the 80s, a 1965 Mustang, 289, two-barrel, with air, sold new at Bill Curry Ford, supposedly, had a Bill Curry sticker on the back of it, covered in dust and filth, four flat tires, 25,000 original miles. Stuff's still out there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, sports fans, car guys. really is, you know, and it doesn't matter. It could be cars, it could be antiques. You just got to kind of, it's all a matter of networking. So naturally, when he sent me the pictures of it, I got all excited because he actually wanted me to go pick it up, sitting over in a storage unit in Tampa. And he found out about it through a through an estate or something like that. So the stuff is still out there. I mean, it's just amazing what is probably hidden. I was in a pawn shop in uh, Hernando and uh, just, you know, just going there looking for vintage stuff like guns, uh, guitars, you know, things like that, you know, stuff that you'd find at a pawn shop. And uh, the lady told me that somebody came in and mentioned that her neighbor or that the neighbor's neighbor, neighbor had passed away and there was a slew of vintage guitars in there. Well, that naturally piqued my interest, but it just so happens the guy that owns the pawn shop's also in the guitar. In fact, he used to be buddy buddies with uh, the lead guitarist for the Outlaws who lived up in Brooksville, Huey, I can't think it was Huey Longison or whatever his name Thomason. was. Thomason. Thomason, Huey Thomason. Thank you there, Tommy. Hey, Tommy, Thomason, hey, pretty close. How could you forget that, right? Anyway, and apparently he got a hold of his guitar his Fender Strat that he used to play. He was a super guitarist, you know. Was it was it the Outlaws that was the uh, Guitar Army? Was that the one that had the nickname? Okay. That is correct, sir. Okay, thank you. Ding, 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 ding. Do I get a prize? Okay, okay. Anyway, but you know, all the Southern bands. Um, we got Bobby... Florida's in- Guitar Army. Florida's Guitar Army. Is that what it was? But that's what they were, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I mean, you look at the Henry Paul band, 
Well, a whole bunch was, uh, of Tampa, North, whatever. Yeah, you know, Jacks. Yeah, the Outlaws, uh, Leonard Skinner, uh, Blackfoot, uh, Molly Hatchet. Um, in fact, I think we got Bobby Ingram coming on, and who's not one of the original members of the Outlaws or what, of Molly Hatchet, but he's been with them since I think the late seventies. And we tried to get Dave on uh, before he passed away. Dave Brubeck or what was his name? Dave, uh, the one of the founding members of, of Molly Hatchet. And, you know, I love all those bands. I really got into the Southern rock. In fact, when we had uh, Ricky Medlock on from Blackfoot, obviously, and Leonard Skinner, I asked him about the term Southern rock. And he said that's it's they don't consider it Southern rock. They consider it rock and roll. But I guess the DJs kind of labeled it Southern rock. You know, it's kind of like the old country music versus this new style country music that they got. And a lot of the, you know, if you talk to someone like uh, maybe not, you know, uh, Larry Gatlin or somebody like that and some of the old timers, they don't really get into this new country rock and roll kind of music, which it really kind of is. But it's cool stuff, you know. It appeals to a younger generation and kind of brings them in. So that's the whole idea is to, is to build audience, right? So you can hopefully sell music and get people interested in it. And if you have a guitar shop, you know, you want to be able to sell musical instruments like guitar, string instruments, or drums, or piano, or, you know, all, that, all, 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 all kinds of musical instruments, even if it's a harp. Anyway, on that note, Let's go to a commercial real quick, and then uh, we'll be right back, and we'll get our special guest on the show for the evening, and uh, it should be some pretty interesting talking. Oh, speaking of Rick Derringer, there we go. A little rock and roll hoochie goo. I always loved this song when it came out. I think it was like 73 maybe or something like that, 72, 73. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Getting Cars. We'll touch that doll. We'll be right back. the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to, oh, a little Good Times, Bad Times. Well, you know, typically what we do is we play, like, you know, our sound effects, and sound effects are usually relevant to the show, so it might be a Cobra, it might be a Porsche, it might be a plane, it might be a motorcycle, it might be a drag car. In this case, since we're on a music kick, it's, uh, how about a Good Times, Bad Times Led Zeppelin riff? That works. Uh, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy Page, um, there, was, uh, there was a thing I read one time that was saying, yeah, uh, rock and roll guys don't play tellies. Uh... 
I can recall seeing Keith Richards and Jimmy Page both playing tellies, so Fender Telecasters. And uh, I don't really particularly care for that. I mean, my two favorite guitars are obviously are three or four. Or I obviously like Fender Mustangs, Fender Strats, and uh, Gibson SGs. Those are my favorites. Uh, 335 Gibson, I think Ricks, Rick and Backers are pretty cool looking and stuff like that. Uh, never really got into acoustics, but, you know, the guitar to have, obviously, is a Martin. But at any rate, Alan just sent me a text saying that there's a Volvo car show on April 17th down at DeSoto. I'm guessing it's Fort DeSoto or DeSoto Park or something like that. So for what it's worth, if you're in the Volvos, um, that's probably where we want to hang out because Volvo made some pretty cool cars, especially the little 1800 series. That's one of my favorites, whether it's the early P1800, 1800S, uh, 1800E, and then the ES wagon. I think I got that right. And if I'm not, Alan's going to correct me because I know that's what his his job in life is to to is to keep me in check since he's far more well-read than I am. I'm one of those kind of guys that when I, when I was in school or looking at magazines, I just look at the pictures, read the captions. You know, pictures worth a thousand words, at least that's what I was always told. But sometimes it helps, helps to read. Uh-oh. Anyway, uh... We are going to uh, flip the phone over here to uh, Tommy, and he's going to go play another little song, and then we're going to get our guest on the show here in a few minutes. And um, it should be quite interesting. Okay, Tommy, why don't you go ahead and roll the the uh, the, 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 the country song that we're going to play per our guest's requests. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Reading Cars. Don't touch that dial. Here's a little uh, Vince Gill, a little Nashville for you guys.
Hello, this is B.J. Thomas. I'm a singer, I'm an entertainer, and we're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cards. Okay, we're back. And uh, in a few minutes here, as our phone goes through, uh, we should be able to get our guests on the phone. So apparently we're having a technicality. But anyway, so uh, yeah, Alan uh, just said Fort DeSoto. Okay, so... Anyway, let's talk a little bit about uh, music, because that's kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight, guitars and stuff. And, you know, it's amazing. Probably one of the most, the biggest thing I can emphasize is uh, um, when you pick up an instrument, no matter what it is, you know, you pick up a particular instrument because you're passionate about it. And when you're, if you're passionate about it, then... You'll play it, but the most important thing that I cannot overemphasize is, and I know if Mike's probably listening, and a couple other guys I know that are in their guitars, is you gotta practice. It's not, and Jerry from uh, um, at uh, Jerry's Music up there, um, Stevie B from Stevie B's place in St. Pete, St. Pete Guitars. You know, they'll all tell you that the most important thing you gotta do is if you pick up the instrument. The guitar is not that complicated. The piano is really not that complicated. You know, you gotta stretch your fingers and you gotta move them around a little bit and you do some weird stuff. You know, because, but it's like anything else. It's like like a, like sports. You gotta practice, 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 practice. Okay, it sounds like we got our guest on the line here right now. So I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, the uh, founder. This gentleman's a writer, a guitarist, um, but he's also the founder of probably one of the most uh, well-known vintage guitar stores in the Nashville area. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, George Groon. George, how are you? Doing good. Doing good. Okay. Why don't you, for our listeners, give them a little brief history? I didn't really disclose anything yet, but you started in at uh, in the early 60s, kind of taking a, an interest in the guitar. Tell us how uh, your uh, passion for guitars began. Well, the 60s, uh, especially the early 60s, 59 to 63, was a big folk music boom that really hit nationwide, if not worldwide. Uh, and there were plenty of commercial folk players, but also a lot of interest, uh, particularly on college campuses in the Northeast, as well as in California, uh, for interest in traditional mountain-type music, uh, Appalachian string band music, and blues. Uh, on the commercial level, the Kingston Trio, Peter Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, a lot of that, which was not so much what interested me. Uh, I went to Oak Park River Forest High, right outside of the Chicago, one of the first suburbs at the uh, Chicago city border. And um, a lot of the kids in the school were very much into that music. And I had friends who played. So I developed an interest in that before I ever started to play guitar. And actually, before I ever played guitar, my primary interest was in zoology, particularly reptiles. And I found that looking at the instruments, I could look at them exactly the way a zoologist would and use the same methodology to figure out just what they are and study them in virtually the same way as you would study scientific specimens. And But they are great pieces of art. They sound good, they look good, they feel good. And if you can actually play one, that's a great interactive experience, so you can appreciate it on lots of different levels. But I pretty well knew most of the Martin models from 100 feet away at a glance before I ever played a note on one. So I'm not the usual path on that. But I started collecting instruments when I was in college. I took about three guitar lessons. And that's about all I ever really had in terms of formal lessons on guitar. But uh, I have been able to pretty well improvise what I like on playing. So I play guitar, five-string banjo, and mandolin. But I, was, uh, I found that when I was in college, I developed this addiction for guitars. And there were lots of them in the immediate area. The University of Chicago is on the south side of Chicago. And it's not far away off campus before you get into neighborhoods where there's lots of pawn shops, as well as 
There was one music store within walking distance of campus that specialized in used and vintage instruments. And of course, at that time, I started college in 63, a lot of what we would consider vintage instruments as electrics today were not particularly old at all. Uh, like CBS hadn't yet bought Fender, so it was still classic era pre-CBS Fender guitars that were still brand new in the stores. Uh, but even the oldest of the Fender guitars, like a Fender Broadcaster in 1963, was not a particularly old guitar since the broadcast was made in 50. And 1950 seems like a long time ago today, but in 63, it wasn't all that long ago. And uh, even when I opened up my store in 1970, a 30-year-old guitar was 1940. And that could be a very classic pre-World War II Martin. It could be a herringbone-trimmed Martin or even a style 45 with all the abalone trim, things that bring hundreds of thousands of dollars today. But uh, 1940 was only 30 years old when I opened up my store in 1970, January. And today, that's the old age of a 1991 guitar. <laughs> yeah. Broadcaster today is a vintage Fender for sure. But in 1970, the oldest broadcaster in January of 70 wasn't yet 20 years old because it didn't come out in January. So times have changed a bit. But um, I started out collecting guitars, and I found for every one that I'd want to personally keep in my searches, I would turn up 20 or more that were great deals on things I really didn't want, but I found them. I'd go in a pawn shop looking for pre-World War II Martins, and they might have something like a Les Paul Gibson for $75, which is about what they would have been bringing used in 1963 or 64 or even into 65. So... I was picking up things like that that I knew where I could sell them. There were kids on campus and elsewhere in the city that I knew would buy them. At the beginning of each month, my parents would give me money to pay rent on an off-campus apartment that I was sharing with another guy, and books and food and uh, whatever. And I'd spend every nickel of it on guitars. <laughs> but within a week, I'd have sold a couple got back all the money I needed, I'd sell the ones that were the surplus on the ones I didn't want, and that way I could have a habit, an addiction for guitars, it was self-sufficient. Um, so my, my hobby funded itself that way. But I didn't really have any thoughts of opening up a music store or ever doing music professionally. My goal at the time was to work toward a PhD in animal behavior studies and do teaching and research. But uh, over time, the hobby got more and more of, uh, say, started to control my life. <laughs> so by the time I, but I did graduate from the University of Chicago and then went on to graduate work in zoology at Duke. And I did some further work at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, in graduate studies with a professor that I had known when he was a graduate student at the University of Chicago and I was still an undergraduate. But uh, that's about the time that I was starting to get disenchanted with the academic scene and decided I'd move to Nashville. So that's, that's at least an intro to how I got started. So what inspired you to go to Nashville? Was it because of the, the, the interest that you had in guitars and music at the time? Because you said you played a little bit. And I think somewhere I was reading you said, well, I played, but I mean, I made you know, maybe $30, $40 $40 in all the time that I played, but I did very well buying and selling guitars. Yeah, well, my lifetime earnings playing music is exactly $49.63 to the present. And that's on eight occasions that collectively add up to that. Okay. Uh, actually, inflation adjusted. The biggest 
payment I ever got for playing guitar was in 63, excuse me, 65. I'd only been playing guitar for about two and a half years. And uh, I got a call from the local music store that I mentioned that had vintage and used instruments, but he had a beginner class and the teacher was sick and he had nobody to teach the class, 10 students. And they were gonna be by in a couple of hours and he offered me $10, which in 1965 was more than $100 of today's money, inflation adjusted. And I skipped a class, and I taught the beginner class. And uh, while they were, uh, I, say I was not experienced as a teacher, but I asked the kids to show me where they were at so that I'd know where to start. And they showed me these pretty little arpeggios and fingerings that I didn't personally know because it wasn't my style of playing. And I asked them if any of them had ever held a flat pick. Nope. So I got out flat picks. They knew how to play in the key of C. I showed them how to do alternating basses and how to do hammer-ons. Showed them the scale. And by the end of the one-hour class, six out of the ten kids were able to pick out tunes by ear and compose on their own. They were having a good time. So uh, that was the biggest payout I had. But at any rate, how did I decide on Nashville? First, in about 1965, I decided that Nashville, which I'd heard about but never been to, would be a great place. They must have an awful lot of guitars, everything I'd heard about country music. And I figured that uh, it'd be better than Chicago. But actually, Chicago turned out to have a heck of a lot more good guitars available. It's a bigger city. There was more money there in Chicago back in the 30s, 1920s, 30s, and even into the 50s and 60s. The South did not have a lot of money. Therefore, a lot of the great instruments of vintage period were not sold down here. But I got down to Nashville on summer vacation break, took the car down there, visited Nashville, went to Showbud, went to Hank Snow's music store, <laughs> and it was mighty slim pickings. It didn't look very promising at all. The pawn shops weren't near as good either as in Chicago. But there was one store there, Hughley's Music, where the manager told me there was a guy in Chattanooga who had a great collection of old Martins. And he had his business card posted right there on his little bullet board. <coughs> it was Mike Longworth, who later went to work for Martin. But at that time, he was in Chattanooga. His family had a Planters Peanuts franchise. But at any rate, I called, no answer. I decided, what the heck, I'd just go down to Chattanooga and he'd probably be home after work. So I got to Chattanooga at about dusk, called, his wife answered. He wasn't home. He was in Asheville, North Carolina at a music festival. But she invited me to come look at his collection, which was indeed quite fabulous. And I asked, how far is Chattanooga is, uh, to Asheville? I said, oh, it's four hours. Well, I got in the car and I drove. I got there about one in the morning and there was all this jam session going on out in the parking lot. And they picking till the hours of the dawn. But there were great instruments. And it was an amazing thing to see. And then I found out there was another festival in a few days at Galax, Virginia. And I went there, and that got me onto the festival circuit. Every summer I'd come down for that. But it also introduced me to the South, to the music, and to people who later would be influential to me. So when I was at Duke, uh, I did my graduate work there, and then switched, as I said, to Knoxville. Knoxville is only at that time, about a four-hour drive from Nashville before the interstate highway system. And one day, I got a call from Hank Williams, Jr., and it went pretty much like this. Hello, this is Hank, Jr. 
And Sonny Osborne from the Opry told me that you have a lot of old Martin guitars, and I'm collecting them. What do you have? And I started telling him a bit, and he says, well, I can be there in four hours. And that was before the interstate highway system, as I said, but he did show up in four hours driving a Jaguar E. He brought one guitar with him. It's a 1939 Martin 0042, fancy pearl-trimmed one, but it had been refinished and worked over by Showbud in Nashville, which pretty well ruined it as a collectible. But he bought three guitars from me. We traded in that one, and he left with three, which was about as much as a Jaguar E would haul. They don't haul <laughs> much. And he said, I could be back. Oh, you're off. And he did show up the next day with a Cadillac Eldorado, and he filled that. And I was selling things like herringbone D28s that today would be big money, that back then were a few hundred dollars each. I was not selling my pearl-trimmed Martins that were their personal collection. He wanted them, but I didn't sell those. But he said that there was nobody in Nashville like me, and if I ever wanted to set up a store, he would help me. He'd have an apartment waiting, and he'd help me get in business. And I didn't take him up on it right away, but a few months later, I was getting disenchanted with the academic scene, and I took him up on that. And he did have an apartment waiting. Uh, he decided that it would be a better idea rather than trying to start a store right away if I'd spend some time in Nashville getting to know the town and seeing where would be the best spot. But I still went over to his house like three times a week. He was a great customer for me. We never did go into business together because we found out soon enough that our personalities would not work out the best for business. Sometimes the best way to lose friends is to either go in business with them or borrow or loan money to them. At any rate, we're still friends because we didn't go into business together. But he did get me to move to Nashville. And I've been here ever since. So I've been in Nashville since the beginning of 1969. You're... Um so basically, you were, like, obsessed with guitars. It was more than just passion. It was more than just collective. It became almost like an obsession, but you turned it into a, a viable business. You've also written a book, and uh, the book's, I think it's Groon's Guide to Vintage Guitars, and then you co-wrote one with uh, Walter Carter. Isn't it? Uh, three books. Three books? Three okay. Books, which were uh, co-authored with Walter Carter. Uh, I hired him. Is that Carter's do. guitars down the street from you there, the other place in Nashville? Is that who that is? His wife, Christy, used to work for me. Both of them did. Oh, okay. So they they got their start in instruments working with me. Okay. Christy was my bookkeeper, and Walter was hired specifically to help me on co-writing projects. Uh, he had been a reporter for the Tennessean newspaper as a music reporter, and he plays. He didn't really know vintage guitars all that much, but he was a quick learner. And uh, after working with me on the book projects, he worked at Gibson for some years and then came back and worked more with me. And then back, um, it would have been... Um, we moved to the present location. Anyway, they, they didn't want to move to the present location, and they decided they wanted to go into business independently. So we split. And they left my employee, and that would have been right around 2012. Okay. But um, anyway, they have Carter, and I have my operation. So I've been in business now a bit over 51 years since January 1970 is when I got into business. I had a business partner for the first nine months, Tut Taylor, and I had actually met him at the Asheville Festival, that very first one that I went to in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, But he and I went into business as partners. The partnership only lasted nine months. 
and I bought him out. He wanted out after nine months. It wasn't making enough money to support him and his family. He was a Mormon, had a wife and eight kids. Oh. And the shop was not going to support him and me. And our one employee, who was Randy Wood, a very good repairman, the original name of the shop was GTR Incorporated, Tut and Randy, and it was, Randy was actually just an employee, but it was Tut and I who were the co-owners, and that, that was the name of the business until 1976, when I moved uh, the business from 111 Fourth Avenue North, which was in a rent building, to 410 Broadway, which I bought. And uh, but the first shop we had was only eleven hundred square feet. No, no twelve hundred square feet. It was twenty by sixty feet, twelve hundred square feet. And uh, the first fifteen feet we had walled off as a showroom. It had two big bay windows that we could put more instruments in, and the rest of the building was an office and repair area. So it wasn't big, but we had great inventory. And it was located just a couple hundred feet from the stage door of the Ryman Auditorium where the Opry is oh. at that time. So it was a very prime location. She wanted to meet a lot of musicians coming through town. Every musician that came through town, regardless of what kind of music they played, whether it was rock or country, they all visited Lower Broadway. And the first year I was in business, the Johnny Cash TV show was taping, and it was mostly appealing to country, but he had a wide diversity. He had Derek and the Dominoes. I met Eric Clapton and sold him four Stratocasters. He had Johnny Mitchell. He had Bob Dylan. He had Merle Haggard. He had Homer and Jethro. He had you name it, he had them. It was an amazing group of players that I got to meet in the very first year I was in business. Uh, Billy Gibbons didn't play the uh, show, kind of cash TV show, but in 70 I, I did meet uh, Rick Nielsen with Cheap Trick and Billy Gibbons. And over the course of a few years in the 70s, Billy bought over 100 guitars from me as did also Rick Nielsen. They both of them, each one of them bought over 100 from me. And over the years, I probably sold at least 75, if not more, to uh, Eric Clapton, as recently as just in the past few months. Wow. So a lot of these people I stayed in touch with. I used to sell quite a few to uh, players with Pink Floyd. Uh, Peter Townsend. So, awful lot of people came through Nashville, even the Rolling Stones. I got to meet them. And pretty much all of that happened in the first two years I was at Nashville. Let me ask you a question. So some of these celebrities that bought guitars, were these guys looking for, and again, keep, let's, we'll keep in mind that this was in the 70s, were they buying vintage guitars back then, or were they buying contemporary guitars back then? They were buying vintage. Vintage. Vintage wasn't near as old. Mm -hmm. But we knew perfectly well, even then, that this stuff was much better, far superior to the new ones available. The 1970s produced some of the worst crap <laughs> in the history of manufactured American guitars. The quality just was not the same. If you wanted a really great-sounding guitar, you pretty much had to get something that was used or vintage. The quality was remarkably different. Uh, you didn't have to go to something extremely old by today's standards. You could get a even a Fender Broadcaster was. You know, they didn't even start those until 1950. Uh, but you could get an old Blackguard telly or even a pre-CBS Rosewood board telly or a Stratocaster, and they weren't expensive. When Eric Clapton bought 
1950s, Maple Board Strats from May in 1970. He paid $400 each for them. And he got really good ones. He also got uh, some guitar bodies and necks, Stratocaster parts over at Showbud, which was around the corner from me. And guitars like Blackie that were put together out of component parts were from that trip. It was stuff he got from me and Showbud that went into some of those. So, What do you think attributed to the, the guitars? Was it besides the wood, which, and, and, and I play a little bit, okay? So, and, and the oldest guitar I have is my 66 Lyle, which is what I bought new when I was a kid, went in to buy a Mustang, and then the guy talked me into a, a Lyle, which is like a 335 knockoff. But, and it, for a Japanese guitar, it really wasn't bad. It's got nice binding on it and everything like that, and it still plays fairly well. But I have a, a mid-70s Strat, which it's a heavy, it's a, it's a hardtail, and it just has a feel to it. And I, I've played older guitars, and and this is uh, Rick Geringer was on our show. He's also, I think, one of your customers too. And, and he, they all say that these older guitars have a feel to them, and you can't explain it unless you're a guitar guy. And Lee Dixon, which is um, Eric Clapton's guitar tech, 2010 from the late 70s, he's been on my show for a while. He says the same thing. And so, is that your thoughts? Is it's it's the wood and it's the way they're made? And, and some of the electronic components and stuff? Well, there's every single component on a guitar matters. It's not that there's just one piece that does it, but it's wood, it's design, and there were design changes in the 70s that cheapened the product. Okay. So it's quite predictable. But there's design materials, workmanship, and cosmetics. And you start digging around with the changes in there, and you can pretty well ruin the product. And what is a common denominator that caused the quality to fall dramatically on Gibson and Fender, as well as Martin guitars, starting in the mid-60s, was management changes. Okay. Leo Fender sold out to CBS in January of 1965. And it didn't take them very long to use up pre-CBS parts and then start cheapening the product. And the difference in sound and playability between the pre-CBS Fenders of 1964 and even the early 65 models where they're using up pre-CBS components versus even late 65, it's completely different. They don't feel sound or play the same. Uh, the Ted McCarty, the Gibson company president, left in about the beginning of 65, same time as Leo, pure coincidence, Gibson had a change in management. They were still owned by CMI, Chicago Musical Instrument Company, but they brought in a new manager who had a background as a bean counter rather than quality control. And they cut corners. They changed the design. So the Gibson Firebird, for example, was introduced in 63. It had neck through body construction, and the pickups were the routes for the pickups were individually routed for the pickups rather than just a big trough. But uh, in 60, late 65, they changed the design when the new management came in. They had a glued in neck, they had less ornamentation, it was no longer neck through body, and they just routed a big trough in the top where you could put one pickup, two pickups, three pickups. The pickups were mounted to the pick guard, whereas previously they were mounted direct into the body and not just into the pick guard. So they'd have a pick guard with the electronics all attached to the guard in one step. And they cut the production cost, but they dramatically cut 
the quality and changed the design. And they did that on virtually every model they touched. And then Gibson had a further change. That Gibson was sold. CMI sold out to Norlin at the beginning of 1970. Norlin was based in Ecuador. They had a beard uh, brewery. They had a big cement plant. They didn't have any other instruments. And they were strictly bean counters, and the quality went further downhill. And uh, but the point is management change. Even at Martin, C.F. Martin III went into semi-retirement. Frank Martin took over. In that's also in the mid '60s. His interests in life were primarily fast cars, fast women, <laughs> alcohol, golf. And uh, I didn't mention guitars, and they weren't part of his real primary interest. And quality did not improve. So uh, management makes a great deal of difference, but ultimately it still gets down to what makes a guitar good, first and foremost, is design. If you have a great design, and you couple that with really fine structural workmanship, and then couple that with really good material, you're going to have something that really is great to play. Uh, you can have a great design and couple it with mediocre uh, workmanship cosmetically, but if it's still structurally strong, it'll hold together. If you have mediocre materials, it won't do as well as if you have great materials, but if you have a great design with Structural workmanship good enough to not fall apart, and materials good enough that they don't get too much in the way, it'll still perform better than great workmanship, great materials, and a mediocre design. Mm. George, so, I want you to hold that thought. Design is first and foremost. Design is excellent. Here's what I want to do. We're up against the clock, but what I would like to do is like to bring you back and do a part two. Would you be willing to do that for us and talk a little bit more? Because there's happy to do it. I'd love to have you back on. If people want to find out more about Gruen Guitars, where do they go? How do they find out about you? Guitars.com. G-U-I-T-A-R-S dot com. Phone 256 Three, area 615 uh, but then guitars.com gets it and uh, my personal email george at guitars.com super but we have 18,000 square feet of instruments on three floors 6,000 square feet of repair shop and we do guitars, banjos, mandolins, electric, acoustic I like mandolins and banjos every bit as much as I like guitars. Well, George, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out with us here. Uh, I look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks. We're going to pick up this. We're going to do part two with George Gruen of Gruen Guitars in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you very much, George. Take care, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. All right, guys, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all you guys for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night here on the Town Talk Radio Network and see us between 7 and 8 p.m. I want you to pick up your guitar and practice. I want to see some of the car shows. Don't forget, every Tuesday, it's Rip Shack Tuesday. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.